From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The pandemic is having an uncertain impact on cattle ranchers. So what we're doing is looking at our crystal ball, we're doing the Ouija board, you know, anything we can think of, <laughs> just trying to look down the future. And right now it's, you know, at least the, the near future is not looking very rosy. The domino effect from the ranch to the feedlot to the price of beef in the grocery store. Supermarkets were clamoring for more product and the only way to ration the demand, if you will, is to see prices increase. Plus, the journey of Paul Scudo. His life shows the extremes of addiction. For the decades that it took me to destroy my life, for it to come back in just under a decade, almost doesn't seem like it's fair. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The pandemic is, of course, affecting pretty much everything these days. The price of livestock has plummeted since the COVID-19 crisis began disrupting the food chain. The pandemic has also meant tens of thousands of animals are being held in limbo because they can't be sold. Steve Gable owns Magnum Feedlots in Wiggins, Colorado. Kenny Rogers is president-elect of the Colorado Livestock Association and CEO of Wagon Wheel Farm in Yuma, Colorado. They spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis about this pandemic reality. She started by asking Kenny to explain how meat gets to our dinner tables. Essentially, you're starting with those of us who are out here and we call ourselves cow-calf producers. You know, we run the cows that have the baby calves. Typically out here, we spring calve and we'll wean in the fall. So those calves will then be sent to uh, some type of a pasture or they make directly enter into a feed yard where they will then be fed out until they reach the uh, optimum weight where they will be sent to a slaughter facility for harvest. And then, of course, the carcass will be broke down and scattered many different directions. So that's kind of the, uh, the lowdown from my perspective on that. And for those who don't know what a feed yard is, can you explain that? Yeah, essentially the, the cattle are in pens where they will be fed at a feed bunk. So they all get what we call a ration. And of course, they have a readily available water source right there, convenient and handy for them. Then there'll be many different uh, pens for those cattle, you know, based upon when did they come in uh, and when are they going to go out. I understand the coronavirus has disrupted this food chain. Can you explain a little bit about what's changed? Well, from our perspective here in the cattle industry, it's the most immediate effect was when they started to hit the workers at slaughter facilities. We didn't see, and I'm unaware of any workers at ranches or other facilities, feed yards and so forth, who may or may not have had it. But the, the biggest impact was when it had the effect of actually shutting down some of our slaughter facilities and just things came to a grinding halt because one thing follows another, one pin of cattle follows another, and so forth and so on. And they all stopped for a period of time until we could kind of work through how are we going to keep those workers safe. And I just want to mention that the meat packing plant, JBS, in Greeley was one of those ones that had to shut down. But Steve, you own a feed yard. What has that meant for you and other feedlot owners who sell to these meat packers who've had to shut down? 
Well, as Kenny mentioned, it can be very, very devastating in that we try to have a a rateable supply. So our objective is to have 16 or 1700 cattle market ready every week. Our entire inventory is committed to the JBS plant in Greeley. Whether it's good or whether it's bad, they were kind of the first plant to experience uh, widespread coronavirus among their workers. And as a result, they were the first plant to go dark. They were dark for a total of two weeks. And during that time frame, we had cattle, obviously, that had been committed to them. They had agreed to harvest those cattle. And fortunately for us, they were able to reroute those cattle to other packing facilities that they own. For example, they've got a plant in Hiram, Utah. They've got a plant in Grand Island, Nebraska. They were able to reroute the cattle that were destined for Greeley to those other two locations And as a result of that, we didn't experience the backlog that other areas are now experiencing. And if we think about the COVID wave and how it's migrated across the country, Greeley was the first plant affected, and then it moved east. There's a packing plant in Fort Morgan. They took one shift or basically cut their production in half for a period of weeks. And then you get on into Nebraska, and some of those Nebraska plants went dark, much like the Greeley plant went dark. And now that seems to have migrated south, so that Kansas and Texas are faced with those plant closures at this point in time. And and I think it's important to to recognize that when those plants close, and, and although we weren't affected specifically as a feed yard here in northeastern Colorado. In other locations, the cattle that were supposed to be harvested couldn't be transitioned to other locations. And as a result of that, they had cattle that were market ready 30 days ago that they're still trying to get marketed today. So does that mean these feed yards are just not yours necessarily, but others are just full of cattle that can't be sold right now? Exactly. It means that the front-end supply or those cattle that are closest to being market-ready, in addition to the regular supply, they've got 30 to 45 days of added supply because of those plant closures in various locations. So... In many ways, you weren't affected at all in terms of being able to sell your cattle, but other feedlot owners have been. Yes, but understand, even though we did not delay the harvest of cattle, the price reduction was felt nationwide. You know, the value of one that we sold in mid-January was approximately $1,500 a head. Those that we sold in the midst of the worst of the coronavirus were worth about $1,220 a head. So, you know, that $480, $380 difference becomes real money when you think about the fact that we've got to sell eighteen, nineteen hundred $1,900 every week. And why did the price go down? Well, it becomes a function of leverage. And although lots of us would like to specifically blame the packer, it became a function of the fact that there were ample supplies of market-ready cattle that need harvested, 
And as plants went dark, that supply grew. If you're dark for a two-week period of time, and then it takes three weeks or a month to get your production back up to 100%, over that six-week period of time, cattle continue to gain weight. Cattle continue to get larger. Cattle continue to get fatter. And historically, our market migrates to the lowest market in the country. So as plants got back online and the virus waved to another part of the country, the cash continued to trend and fade lower. So once the animals become bigger and fatter, are they harder to sell? They're harder to sell and it puts more product into the pipeline. At the same time the price of livestock has gone down, the cost of meat at stores has gone up and there's been less selection. Can you explain that? I think in large part, if we think about the packers' position, for example, when they go dark and greely, they think that after two weeks, they will be back up and functioning. Now, before they shut the plant down and before the coronavirus hit, they could harvest about 5,000 cattle per day. So double shift, 5,000 cattle in a day. After the coronavirus hit and they reopened the plant, they started out killing eight or 900 a day. So they weren't exactly sure what production was going to be like until they had a very sound idea of how the workforce was going to return. And because of that, Supermarket shelves had started to grow somewhat empty, and supermarkets were clamoring for more product. And the only way to ration the demand, if you will, is to see prices increase. Now that meatpacking plants are opening up, will the prices return to normal? I'm not sure what normal is, but it would be my expectation that retail beef prices will return closer to what they were pre-coronavirus than they've been since coronavirus. And Kenny, how have ranchers been affected by these lower prices? We heard about folks who own feedlots. What about ranchers? Well, I mentioned this a while back. I said typically most ranchers, since their calves are market ready and and they're going to do something with them in late fall or perhaps early winter, most all of us have taken our paycheck for the year, but what we're looking at now, and Steve alluded to it, you know, we've, we've seen the impact on the prices, and of course that goes through the entire production chain. You know, what are what are the feeders wanting to pay for those calves that are coming off our cows? So what we're doing is looking at our crystal ball. We're doing the Ouija board. We're uh, you know anything we could think of, <laughs> just trying to look down the future and right now it's you know at least the the near future is not looking very rosy so i think that's impacting them even though financially some and perhaps most haven't taken the financial hit yet so that's impacting their buying decisions you know they perhaps they were going to get a, a new pickup or new this you know that or the other thing to add to their operation or perhaps even expand that operation and most everyone has just put a lot of those buying decisions on hold for right now. And Steve, are you eligible for government funding, the CARE Act funds? I think everybody that's involved in cattle production has some degree of eligibility. 
you know, the way that the rules are written right now, if you marketed cattle between January 20th and April, I don't know what the date is, 14th or 15th, for the cattle that were market ready during that time frame, you get a one-time payment for those. And then based upon maximum inventory levels from like April 20th to May 15th, there'll be a payment eligibility for that inventory of cattle. You know, the unfortunate thing is there's a cap uh, as to what each individual entity can get paid. You know, like most government programs, there are plenty of rules and regulations. And on an individual basis, the most any one person can receive in terms of government payment is $250,000. Now, I'm not to say that's not a lot of money because it damn sure is. Uh, but if I've got 1800 to market every week, and today they're worth $380 and less than they were pre-corona, it doesn't take very long to spend that $250,000 that we're going to get from the government. And Kenny, how is the industry doing before the pandemic? I know Americans have been eating less meat. Well, overall, we were, you know, really relatively doing well you know a few years back we really had a a good payday for everybody but i mean that's the whole issue with all of this with the COVID thing is we're sailing such uncharted waters now no one knows what might be coming down the pike kenny rogers is president-elect of the colorado livestock association and ceo of wagon wheel farm in yuma colorado Steve Gable owns Magnum Feedlots in Wiggins, Colorado. They spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It has not been an easy spring for Colorado school officials. Once the coronavirus shuttered schools in March, they had to figure out how to educate 900,000 students remotely. Now they have a new challenge. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine reports on how Colorado's second largest district is developing a plan for schools to reopen in the fall. The Herculean challenge of opening up Jefferson County's 155 public schools doesn't come without worries. What keeps me up at night is this tension between educating students and public health. That's Christopher Shu, the district's deputy superintendent. He and strategy officer Tom McDermott led the restart effort. For the district, it's been a careful balancing act. The goal is to give kids the highest quality education, which means in classrooms, but doing so in a pandemic. We cannot become a vector for the virus. We need to protect our staff members. We need to protect our students. We need to protect our families. So public health has been a cornerstone of this plan. Jeffco has taken a careful and methodical approach to planning for that first day of school, tapping into insights from principals, teachers, health officials, and 17,000 public comments. Teams of educators and health officials have walked through schools to envision every minute of the day from a student's perspective. Jeff Pearson is the district's director of safe school environments. His team will create a video for families about what a day in the life of a school will look like. Every component of what a day could look like from food line, classroom, restrooms, directional arrows, anything that they could potentially encounter, 
But the draft plan, a final plan, will come out July 8th, doesn't just reflect Jeffco's own thinking. COVID-19 has prompted a sea change in how Colorado's large districts operate. Daily and weekly meetings with administrators in other districts and health and state education officials allow sharing of ideas for what day-to-day operations will look like. In addition, Jeffco has studied what's happened in school systems around the world where the pandemic hit earlier. We don't find a surge in cases when the school reopens. So that's reassuring. Jeffco Superintendent Jason Glass says all systems, though, have COVID mitigation strategies, from temperature screening and social distancing to, in some cases, COVID tests for all students and staff. Julie Wilkin, Jeffco's Director of Health Services, says staff will be trained on all of that, including what to do when a student becomes symptomatic. Getting them out of the building quickly, being able to contact trace back to their cohorts and being able to know who was in contact as they became symptomatic. Initially, because students had to be six feet apart, the district planned a hybrid model of half remote learning, half in-person learning. But gradually, health experts began stressing instead keeping cohorts of students together. Elementary students will now be able to attend school five days a week. Peak Expeditionary School principal Tim Carlin says each homeroom class will stay together all day and other teachers will travel to students. And so we picture our art, music, and PE teachers coming to classrooms and and picking them up safely and bringing them to a safe environment. Families, however, can still choose a remote learning option. Right now, Jeffco's plan for middle and high school students is a mix of remote and in-person learning. But the district is studying whether it's possible for older grades to come back full-time, too. Ninety percent of respondents in Jeffco's survey said they'd opt for in-person. But for that other 10 percent, teachers will still have to plan remote lessons as well. Lakewood High Principal Dan Bach says his teachers have already raised questions. Teachers are going to be asked to do an incredible amount of work keeping all kids on track. And not to say that that it can't be done, but it really is a, a tremendous challenge. Anxiety is high among some teachers, especially those who teach art, music, and PE, because those domains are tactile and physical. After reviewing a draft of the district's plan, Robert Wright, who teaches PE at two elementary schools, says he has major questions. I've been teaching for 21 years and I have no idea how my teaching that I've perfected over 21 years even relates to this. District officials say that's why school will start August 24th, well after teachers scheduled August 12th return, so educators can receive training and practice health protocols and how their classes will run. Meantime, Deputy Superintendent Shu looks for the silver lining in all of this. We are sharing ideas and we're collaborating. Jesco will be better. Because when this is over with, I'm going to keep on talking to these people. I'm going to keep on collaborating with these folks. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. CPR's podcast, Back From Broken, shares stories about the highest of highs, the darkest moments, and the hope and resilience that can come with recovery. Paul Scudo's journey helped inspire Back From Broken. He's a man who's seen some very hard times and fought his way back. Vic Bella has Paul's story. Did someone offer you water? Do you want some water or anything? I believe that uh, that one would be great. Take it. Uh... 
Paul Scudo almost struts when he walks into the room, but in a friendly, laid-back sort of way. After all, he's wearing a Hawaiian-looking shirt. Then we started talking about the past. In 1992, Paul was a student at Michigan State, and his career was already off to a great start. He took a job at the Performing Arts Center on campus, where he met Yo-Yo Ma when the cellist played a concert there. He worked a presidential debate in 1992 and rubbed shoulders with the Bush, Clinton, and Perot campaigns. It was a thrill for him. You see, this wasn't just a part-time gig. He fell in love with the work. This industry was professional. I had a job where I wore a suit, but I was still kind of doing that blue-collar, work-hard thing. But you're also serving these famous people. I always worked at this level of service that was, it was five-star service. So who I was meeting and rubbing elbows with were all of these, you know, very prominent, important individuals. So that was exciting to be doing that, to be able to walk in those circles. And we were always moving at light speed in the work we were doing. It checked a lot of boxes for you. It did. But Paul had a big secret. He'd battled drug addiction for a few years. His parents had actually sent him to rehab when his drinking hurt his grades. But he didn't really think he had a problem heading into rehab. He didn't think he had a problem when he left. When he got out, he just kept drinking. And around the time he started working in the service industry, he started to dabble in cocaine. That was my drug of choice, too. Well, that and a lot of other drugs. I asked Paul to talk about what it was like for him the first time he took cocaine. For me, it was this rush of energy from a physical standpoint and this rush of euphoria from a mental or emotional standpoint. It was a pleasure unlike any other feeling that I had gotten, whether it be from food or any of the other substances or sex or, or anything else that produces the endorphins uh, that, that create pleasure. And it was like that from the very first time you did it? It was. So now I find myself, you know, doing these things that are extremely meaningful and memorable. I felt like my drug and alcohol use was not a problem for me. Because you're surrounding yourself with these important people. Correct. The evidence is that I just served Yo-Yo Ma lunch. I can't have a problem. That's a big deal. The problem wasn't even a thought. My, my brain, you know, subconsciously just turned off the idea that there could be a problem. Soon, Paul finished college. He quickly moved up the ladder in the hospitality business. Because I love the industry so much, I was able to do very, very well. Moved up, uh, and I won't name any of the corporations, but five-star hotel corporations. Was able to get promoted, transferred around the country, was kind of the golden boy, and moved from the actual food service to more of the sales and marketing and ultimately had very high positions uh, for major hotel corporations. What did that success look like? Uh, nice suits, travel, 
first yep. class. Great office, managing a number of people, overseeing a number of hotels. And to be able to have achieved that, uh, again, while drinking and using uh, the, the entire time, you know, made me feel like I never had a problem. But it was, right, having the power, decision-making, it was something that, that stroked my ego immensely. Paul, how did you know you had made it in your career? I think for me, it was the day that I walked into the first office that had windows and a big mahogany desk with leather chairs and a credenza. And I looked out onto these beautiful grounds. I had a leather blotter, right? All these things you see in the movies or television for the, the rich guy that has the, the nice office. They were telling me this was my office. And Paul's personal life was great. He got married, he and his wife bought a home and settled in Denver. And he had a good time on nights and weekends, drinking and using cocaine with friends. Until one day when one of the people Paul used drugs with told his wife he thought Paul had a problem. So his wife confronted him. It was a Saturday morning and I woke up to her sitting on the bed saying, I want a divorce. Just and like I, that? Yep. And I said, why? She said, because I know you've been doing cocaine. I know that's where you've been at the bars. Who knows what else you're doing there? Um, and I can't live this kind of life. And the primary reason is not the drug itself, but that you've been dishonest with me for years. Um, it was almost a relief, Vic. You know, for folks that suffer from the disease of addiction, one of the biggest stressors is the hiding and the lying and the manipulating and the trying to remember to whom you've told what. And so Paul's life actually got a little easier for a while. Until the day that I got arrested. And that was the beginning of the end. Let's talk about that. What day was that? So I was coming home from work, and at this point, I was able to use at the pace that I wanted to use because I didn't have to hide it from my wife. But every day, as soon as I left work, I would go and pick up, right? And I was in a rush to get home to use, and I rolled through a stop sign, and I was pulled over. I was driving a Jeep Grand Cherokee. I'm in my nice car, in my nice neighborhood, wearing my nice suit. The policeman is extremely polite. He steps up and says, Mr. Scudo, you rolled through that stop sign. Let me check your license, insurance, registration, and I'll get you a warning and, and I'll let you be on your way. And so uh, I pulled out my wallet very quickly because I was nervous. The drugs were in my wallet. They fell out onto my lap. Would it feel like having those handcuffs slapped on you? Uncomfortable physically, uncomfortable psychologically, humiliating, right? Because I was always an individual that was better than, right? I, I'm what do you not, mean by that better than? 
many people do this and they don't even recognize that they're doing it. They kind of classify themselves with respect to other people. And I was not the type of person that would ever get arrested for drugs. I was better than that. I was bailed out the next morning. I went home, sat with my sister who had bailed me out, made up this elaborate lie and told the story and began fabricating what was to be a four-year story while I was in drug court. Let's talk about drug court. Um, it's different. It works different than anything else in the criminal justice system, right? It does. How, how does drug court work? The goal is to not have people in jail. The goal is to not have people with a criminal record that's going to preclude them from participating in society, uh, getting an apartment, getting a job, that sort of thing. And so all I had to do were follow a few simple conditions. It's a golden opportunity. Absolutely. And a lot of people don't know that. Drug court can help people get clean without getting them caught up in a never-ending cycle, right, in the criminal justice system. How'd you do in drug court? I did poorly, because uh, by this point, I could not stop drinking and using. And then when I would show up in court, I was showing up in a suit, I could speak very eloquently, and they were extremely patient with me, but every time I was sentenced to a couple days in jail. You still believed that you were a successful person who didn't belong there. Correct. But at some point, did the judge finally have enough of you and your excuses? So, yes, they were extremely patient with me. Uh, they kept me in drug court for four years. Um, I went to jail every month for two days for four years. That's a patient judge. It was an extremely patient judge. And he would also, so as I would not lose my job, allow me to do my jail time on the weekend. So I would come back on a Friday afternoon, changed out of my suit into comfortable clothing, my jail clothes, I called them. And uh, they'd put me in jail for the weekend. I'd get out uh, Monday at 2 a.m. in the morning, go home, shower up, go to work. I would tell my friends that I was away for the weekend on a business trip and was able to maintain this lie for four years. After four years, the judge finally said, Mr. Scudo, this is obviously not working for you. We're revoking your deferred judgment. You now have a felony on your record and you're going to jail for six months. And that's when I lost my job. Heading into that court hearing, did you think that was going to happen? I did not. And that's that's the the very deceiving thing about this is that anyone with any modicum of self-awareness would say, what am I doing? But I had lost the ability to think in that manner. No more nights and weekends. He'd lost a great job and now had a felony on his record, which made finding another job much harder. But when he got out, he just kept using. He burned through thousands in savings and started to get warnings from creditors and his mortgage company. Phone calls, letters, all types of reminders. That when ignored, 
what, what happened with your mortgage? So eventually I was evicted from the home. That was probably one of the more traumatic experiences of my life. Uh, I was forced to watch all of my possessions thrown into a roll-off dumpster and then towed away. Um, And for me, it was not about the material or the financial things that I lost. The leather couch, the plasma TV, uh, the Calphalon cook set. It was about the sentimental things that I had had with me for most of my life. One of the things that to this day I will never forget is I did a finger painting of a snowflake in kindergarten. I brought it home to my parents and they framed it. And it was in their home for all of their life. And when they sold their home and retired, and they gave me this finger painting, and it was in every one of my homes. And that was thrown away. It was as if my history and my emotions had been ripped away thrown in a dumpster, and driven off to the landfill. So Paul was homeless and in debt. His family down in Florida took him in, but he just kept using. And pretty soon he was kicked out of their house. And now Paul was really living on the streets. He slept behind some dumpsters next to a strip mall in Florida. And and I would ask myself, how did I get to this place? And never did it once occur to me to think that it was a drug and alcohol problem. It was my depression. It was my ex-wife. It was my employers. It was the police. All these things conspiring against you. To some degree, yes. But these were the reasons I was sleeping on the ground. Not me, my choices, my actions, my behavior and ultimately the disease of addiction. That did not occur to me. Well, what did you eat? How did you eat? Uh, Einstein's bagels was probably my primary diet for the majority of that time because they would take the day-old bagels, they would bag them up, and they would throw them in the dumpster. So pulling it out of the dumpster was safe. And so I would open this bag and I would stuff my backpack with bagels um, and that's, that's how I existed. The other daily exercise that I engaged in was I would walk up and down the streets that had meters and I would collect the change that people had dropped. And the key number was $3.58 because at $3.58, I had enough money to get a pint of vodka. I would then walk to the liquor store and buy my pint. You know, by then it was about two o'clock. I would go back to the Einstein's bagels and wait for them to, to drop the bagels between two and three. And then I would begin drinking and I would drink until I blacked out and passed out. How Paul woke up after this break. Members are an essential source of funding for Colorado Public Radio, but not everyone can give right now. So to inspire essential support during this difficult time, 
An anonymous donor is matching your gift with a $100,000 grant. Make a donation now. It's easy. Choose an amount that fits your budget and then go on with your day knowing you're not only supporting your listening, you've also doubled your impact. Donate to participate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. For Paul Scudo, the path toward recovery was long, winding, and uncertain. He shared his journey with backroom broken host Vic Vela. Before the break, Paul had reached another low, but not rock bottom. Paul had been living on the streets in Florida for months when he caught a lucky break. He went to the public library to check his messages on the computer. One was from an old friend in Denver who wanted to help Paul stop using. He sent him money for a bus ticket and invited Paul to stay with him. So Paul moved back to Colorado, but he continued to use drugs, usually when he was out of the house, away from his friend. One evening, uh, it was about 2.15 in the morning, I had a bag of cocaine and a half a bottle of vodka, and I was sitting in this car, and up behind me pulls a Denver police officer and turns on the lights. So very quickly, it goes through my mind that I have no license, no registration, no insurance, and I'm a convicted felon for the possession of narcotics. I've got to find a way to get out of this. So I wait until the police officer walks up to the car and taps on the window, and I start the car and I speed away. And this begins a high-speed chase. It was like a television show. I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and I'm picking up police cars, as the, the officer obviously has called this in, and other officers are now joining the chase. And I will always attribute this to a spiritual experience because I have no other explanation for it. I turned quickly down a side street and then quickly into an alley, sped down the alley, and then there was an open garage. I pulled the car into the garage, got out of the car, ran down the alley, hopped a fence, and got underneath a deck of of a home. It had about a one and a half foot clearance. It is freezing cold. And I am lying under this deck, hiding from the police, high on cocaine, so I'm extremely agitated, scared beyond anything, any type of fear I've ever had, and frankly freezing, and miserable, absolutely miserable. And somehow or another, they never found me. Paul hatched a plan during those hours he spent shivering under the deck, hiding from the cops. No, it wasn't to get sober. He wanted to head back to his friend's house where he'd been staying. My thought is that I'm going to get all my stuff and go to Mexico because there's now a warrant for my arrest in the United States. And I'm not thinking well, but this is my plan to get away. And so... I decide that I'm going to clean the bathroom I was using, clean the bedroom, wash the sheets so that I leave the home in the condition that that I moved into it in. Why did you do that? Here you are. You just fled the police 
right? And you're hiding and you're thinking of going to Mexico, but you still want to clean the house. I don't know. It it It's part of feeling responsible. And, and You were anything but responsible at that time. But I felt responsible to these people. They made me promise them that I would never disappear again. And that struck me in such a profound manner that I knew I had to wait for them to get home and face them face to face to apologize and to tell them I was leaving. There was something inside of you that was that needed to do the right thing in a series of events where you were doing anything but. That's a very good way of summing it up because this was a catastrophe. So he went back to his friend's house to apologize. They offered to help send him to rehab. And I said yes. And in my mind, I was still going to Mexico. But right then I said yes. So we all went to bed with the understanding that the following morning I was going to be calling the treatment center. Well, I woke up the following morning and my keys were gone and the house was locked and my friend was sleeping on the couch by the front door. So escaping to Mexico at that point was not an option. And I made the call to the treatment center and uh, set up intake for the following day. So they meant business. Your friends meant business. They were wise to to me (laughs) and what I was going to do, and and they did mean business. And so you only had one way to go now, and that was to rehab. At that point, I had surrendered to the fact that I needed help. Rehab takes work. It can feel uncomfortable at times, but it can feel like an epiphany when you learn how your sober brain is supposed to work. There's this Seinfeld episode where George tries to do the opposite of what he'd normally do. That's what I remember what early recovery felt like. Paul says his experience was a little different. Learned, ingrained behaviors often take time Mm. to change. Mm -hmm. So I would find myself lying or trying to manipulate The difference is I would catch that and I would say, wait, that's not true. Or wait, can I try that again? But it did not come naturally right off. And how how long were you in rehab for? Um, I stayed in treatment for a total of 90 days. I felt like a completely different person. And I was on that pink cloud that you hear people describe where your life has been so bad for so long and you see this tangible evidence of it getting better and you can do nothing but feel good about that. But because of his criminal record, Paul still worried about what would come after getting clean and he still needed a way to pay bills. So his sponsor hooked him up with a job at a handyman business. And I knew it was going to be difficult for me to find a job again. So I started working with him in a very menial job. Clean this up, pick that up, bring this here, carry that. Right? I I was essentially doing grunt work, which was good for me for a couple of reasons. A, it was mindless, and I just had to do what I was told. B... It was a job that while I lived in that 
high-powered, white-collar world I looked down on. And this humbled me to be doing that job, but also gave me an appreciation for how hard people work in that industry. And how dare I judge those people? From there, he got another job at the Addiction and Recovery Center where he had gotten clean. It's called Cedar. He met a woman who was also in recovery. They got married, and soon they looked for a home. And all of a sudden, we're able to buy our own home again. And that was a major milestone for us. So at this point, life was really good. And it happened very, very quickly over a two-year period. Paul, what was that like the day that you put your name on the, you know, to sign the mortgage and because you had lost it all not that long ago, right? It was scary. It was exhilarating. It was unbelievable because to your point, it was not that very long ago that I had been living on the street, not that very long ago that I had been running from the police, not that very long ago that I had been in treatment, and not that very long ago that I had been living in a sober living home. And here I was with a wife and a great job, and we were buying a house. And I had owned three other homes prior to this, This one, I really feel like I earned. This one, I have a whole different level of of responsibility for taking care of. And this one feels more like a home than any of the others I've lived in. Professionally, Paul moved from Cedar to another treatment program called STEP Denver. When he got to STEP, it had a pretty high relapse rate. They wanted Paul to make the program more effective It was the perfect job for him. Because while I felt that what I was doing at Cedar was important, the patients that I was serving there were not yet at the bottom of the barrel, not yet homeless without resources. And so every time I would go to step and I would work, I would leave with this feeling that I had done something truly valuable for people that wouldn't otherwise have this opportunity. And along with two of the employees that were there who had been residents of the program and were now employees. The three of us built a recovery program around the core philosophies of sobriety, work, and accountability that were a part of STEP's original founding principles. You go from homeless cocaine addict, alcoholic, to executive director of a Denver men's recovery center. How does that register in your heart and in your head? That is a heck of a life in terms of uh, the events that, that led up to it. I still on many mornings wake up and it is fresh in my mind, that feeling of being homeless and scared there is still some part of me that thinks this has happened so quickly. And for the decades that it took me to destroy my life, for it to come back in just under a decade almost doesn't seem like it's fair. 
When Paul talks about sometimes feeling scared over what he's accomplished in his recovery, or even that it's unfair that his life has turned around for him so quickly, that's something that's common for recovering addicts. We're so used to messing things up all the time that there's still a voice in our heads that tells us we're not worthy. But in time, that voice grows softer. It just goes to show that recovery is a long road. Paul Scudo continues to work at Step Denver. The guy who was once so driven to have a great career in the hospitality business and sometimes looked down on the addicts that surrounded him now says he feels most grateful that he gets to help those who struggle with addiction when he goes to work every day. CPR's Vic Vela and Back From Broken, sharing the journey of Paul Scudo. If you're struggling with addiction, we have a list of resources at backfrombroken.org. You can hear this entire episode at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also catch the latest episode featuring legendary wrestler Jake the Snake Roberts. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.